Good afternoon, everybody. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. This is Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat. I am once again without my partner in crime, Jacques Hebert. He is taking a much-needed vacation, although he seems to be taking a lot of vacations this summer. We'll have to talk to him about that. But we are looking forward to a great show. We want to remind you about our last episode, Mapping Louisiana's Coast. We had Brady Cuvion with USGS, where he was talking about his latest Louisiana land loss maps, and Scott Hemmerling from the Water Institute of the Gulf to talk about his work in human dimensions and how people are affected by land loss. So you can catch that episode online on our new website, www.deltadispatches.org You can listen to past episodes and you can subscribe to our weekly podcast on iTunes and Google Play. We also, one more reminder to take action to protect Louisiana's coast against devastating cuts to our GOMESA program. Senator, excuse me, um, Representative Scalise said in an op-ed, over the past few years, there have been attempts to take away this revenue from Louisiana and other energy-producing states. But make no mistake, like previous years, I will not allow this critical coastal restoration money to be raided. It's too important to Louisiana's future and is vital to our coastal restoration efforts. This isn't a partisan issue, and we enjoy strong bipartisan support in protecting these funds for Louisiana and other Gulf Coast states. We're still thinking about the... Recovery for Congressman Scalise, and we certainly believe in his words. So feel free to take action on the Mississippi River Delta website, which is MississippiRiverDelta.org backslash get involved and take action. Another reminder that tonight begins the Mid-Barataria Public Meetings. These meetings are scheduled to take place from 5 to 8 p.m. There is one tonight in Lafitte at the Multipurpose Complex, one next Tuesday in Bell Chase, and one next Thursday in Port Sulphur. We're going to talk a little, a lot more about those meetings today and what exactly is going to take place there and what everything means in the process. You can RSVP for those events on Facebook, and you can also find out more information um, in our blog, which is the Your Voice is Needed for Our Coast, attend upcoming Mid-Barataria scooping meetings. Well, let's get into those details of the public meetings. And to do that, we have two special guests with us from the Environmental Law Institute. Joining us right now are Teresa Chan and Amy Streetwiser. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thanks for having us. Thanks, man. It's great to have you guys. It's about um, 95 degrees in Louisiana today. I'm sure y'all are missing being here. <laughs> y'all can't. Y'all were here last week, right? I think there was a little bit of rain to cool it down. It is definitely a hot one in Louisiana, so I'm sure you're missing that. Well, thank you for joining us on the show today. Um, why don't y'all tell us a little bit about the Environmental Law Institute and about yourselves personally? Sure. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about the Environmental Law Institute to start. Uh, so we're a nonprofit organization based out of Washington, D.C. And while a bunch of us on staff are lawyers, and that includes Amy and that includes me, uh, we don't do what I would say are typical lawyer-like activities. So we don't represent clients, and we don't litigate, and we don't lobby. But we really focus in on research and education. And just to tell you a little bit more about myself, um, I have been working at uh, ELI for almost eight years now, and for almost seven of that, I've been working on golf issues, and I've been focused mostly on the restoration and recovery processes that were put in place after the BP oil spill. So really just working to provide materials and information that explain what's going on and how folks can participate in the processes. 
probably never thought that path would take you here, right? From Ontario all the way down to another <laughs> French settlement. <huh? laughs> no, I, I don't. I wouldn't have guessed that for sure. <laughs> Amy, how about you? Well, I've been with ELI for almost five years, and I've been working with Teresa on our Gulf of Mexico team for about a year now. So it's almost my anniversary. Um, Happy anniversary, born, Amy. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was actually born and raised on the Gulf Coast of Florida, so the health of the Gulf and the region are things that are pretty near and dear to my heart. So you can and appreciate I, the humidity, sh- too, I'm sure. Yes, <laughs> that as well. And, I re- yeah, I just really love working in this area um, of ELI's work, mainly because we get a chance to work directly with the communities. And I go to New Orleans all the time, which is obviously yeah. that that is a nice perk. Um, the show before us was talking about Tales of the Cocktail, which is a big event here <laughs> in New Orleans. And so Jacques and I, uh, they do their show, and Jacques and I are always like, "Yeah, we need to cross over. We need some cocktails during Delta dispatches." <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just kind of want to reiterate: I'm, I'm married to a lawyer, so I certainly understand the litigation and, and what that goes into that. But you guys don't litigate, you don't lobby, you're nonpartisan. You really. They want to explain the process, right, to the community, and and tell us what you're doing here in Louisiana. Yeah, so um, some of our recent work, as you had mentioned, uh, both Amy and I were down in Louisiana last week, and, um, and during that time, we partnered with the Restore the Mississippi River Delta Coalition in order to host uh, workshops. So we held three different workshops. There was one in New Orleans, one in Belle Chase, and all, another one in West Wego. So um, we were really focused in on those workshops and discussing the issues that we're talking to you about today. So focusing on what scoping is, uh, why it's important and how folks can participate in the process. So that's so interesting. And of course, um, we, we are part of that Mississippi River Delta campaign. And, and we've been talking about uh, sediment diversions on the show and especially Mid-Barataria about the project itself. And, and hopefully we'll get into that even more later with our second guest. But really, we want to talk to the community here. But for those folks who couldn't attend the workshops, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the meetings and what they mean. Some simple scoping 101. So let's start with what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really odd word, so that's a good question. Um, but to help answer that question, I think it might be helpful to take just a few steps back um, and to explain how scoping fits into the process that's going on right now. Sounds like a plan. So, <laughs> so we've got the um, Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, the CPRA, and it's proposing to build this project, the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion Project. Now, the CPRA can't just go ahead and start building the project, uh, but it needs different permits and different permissions, and it also has to consult with different government agencies before it can move forward with the project. And one of those government agencies is the Army Corps of Engineers. And the CPRA has applied to the Army Corps for permits and permissions to move forward with the project. So um, the Corps has to decide, do we grant this um, permissions and do we issue this permit or not? And in order to help it make its decision, it's preparing a document called an environmental impact statement, or it's often shorthanded as an EIS. And that's required under a federal law called NEPA, or the National Environmental Policy Act. I know there's lots of acronyms, so I'm trying to... Yeah, we're used to that around here with CPRA and Quipra and MRD and all that. So, But it's helpful, very helpful for you to explain. Yeah, the, so, so, so that's required, this document, this environmental impact statement is required under, under NEPA. Now, this EIS is going to help the Army Corps decide whether it issues the permits and the permissions that CPRA has asked for. And it should also help other government agencies who are going to have to make decisions on this project as well. It should help them as well make those decisions. 
So now thinking about this environmental impact statement that they're going to prepare in order to help them figure out whether to issue the, the permit and permissions, uh, there are several steps that are required um, to be taken in order to prepare that environmental impact statement. And one of the very first steps that is taken is something called scoping. And this is when the government agency determines the range, or as it calls it, the scope of the different issues that it will be covered in this environmental impact statement. And as a part of that, it reaches out to the public and to others and asks for input about what should go into that environmental impact statement. So scoping is really this opportunity very early on to get input into the document before it's even drafted. So I think it's a, it's a really important opportunity to participate. Absolutely. So that's so fascinating to hear you break it down like that. It's it's so complicated. Uh, we're going to have to take a little break, but I hope you all will join us uh, just throughout the break. We have a few more things to get into about what to expect at the meeting, what can people do themselves at the meeting. Hopefully we'll get into that, all that after the break. Uh, we'll be back. This is Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to EDF.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Simone Malaz. Hello with Restore Retreat. <laughs> We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our new podcast. Clearly, I need Jacques Hebert to come back and help me out. Uh, you can check out the podcast on www.deltadispatches.org. Welcome back, Amy and Teresa. Thank you for hanging with us. Yeah, thank you again for having us. So we were having a great discussion, and, and y'all were very clear on explaining NEPA and EIS. Um, but let's talk about what folks maybe can expect at the meeting itself. The first one is tonight in Lafitte. So what, what can they expect? 
Yeah, so, you know, Simone, as you already mentioned, the, the um, meeting's taking place from 5 to 8 p.m., um, and about half an hour of that, so the 5.30 to 6 p.m. slot of that is going to be presentations. So there's going to be a presentation on NEPA, and there's also going to be some presentations on the Mid-Baratarius Sediment Diversion Project. Uh, but the rest of the time, so the other two and a half hours, is going to be an open house. Um, and so that's a, a part of the process or part of the meeting where folks can ask questions, um, and they also can provide comments. And they can do that either in written comments or they can also provide verbal comments. Very cool. So can I provide the comment at the open house, correct? Yes. So you can either, in terms of if you want to provide a written comment, you can bring one with you, or they also have comment cards there for you to write your comments down if you want to do it that way. And also there's going to be court reporters set up there. So if you want to give your verbal comment, you can go up to one of those court reporters and give your comment to them. And you're limited, right, to the time that you have with a court reporter. Yeah, it's really short. So there's only three minutes if you want to give a verbal comment. I can talk pretty fast, but I don't know if I can do everything in three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's really quick. It's really quick. I mean, they do say that there's an opportunity um, potentially for more time for a comment, but Mm -hmm. that's not guaranteed. So I think you have to count on three minutes. So you can submit written comments, though, until I think September 5th, right? So you have a while to submit written comments, correct? Yeah, and I think that's an important point, which is that these meetings aren't the only opportunity to provide comments. You uh, folks have until September 5th to get in comments. So, for example, maybe you're not able to get to the meetings of one of the three meetings that are happening, or you go to a meeting and, you know, spark some ideas about what right, you want right. to comment on. You have till September 5th to either write something and, and mail it in, or you can email it as well. So, Amy, what, like, what might I include in my comments? Well, the scoping period is your best chance to influence two key aspects of the EIS. Number one, the list of environmental impacts and issues that get included in the discussion. And number two, the range of alternative actions that get considered by the agency. So if you have questions about how the project will impact the environment and your community, or if you have ideas for how the project could be tweaked or approached a little differently, those are really the two broad categories that you should be focused on in your scoping comments. So impacts, Amy, that doesn't necessarily mean good or bad, right? I mean, or I guess it, it could be environment. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the idea of an impact is pretty broad, and there are lots of types of impacts that you can ask about in your scoping comment. Under the law, the EIS has to cover the impacts on the, quote, human environment, but they use a really broad definition of environment. And so what that means is that it's not only impacts on what we might think of as traditional environmental resources, like air and water and plants and wildlife and fish, uh, but it also covers other kinds of impacts that the action could have on us, on humans. So these could be health impacts, economic impacts, effects on you know, special historical places or cultural resources. So, for example, you might want them to study impacts on your local business or changes in property values or whether your insurance costs will go up and down or even just how traffic patterns will be affected during the construction phase. So these are all, all these types of things are fair game for you to ask about in your scoping comment. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know. So let's talk about alternatives. Can, can one of the alternatives be no action at all? Absolutely. Actually, the agency has to include taking no action as one of its alternatives. So the IRS will definitely evaluate the environmental consequences of just sitting back and doing nothing. Um, and usually by the time the scoping meeting, the agency has a few alternatives in mind that it plans to study in the IRS, including that no action alternative. But scoping is the only real chance for the public to offer their own ideas and information about other alternatives that might meet the same purpose and need as the project. 
So when y'all did the workshops, what, what was one of the most common, What, which, by the way, I think were probably extremely helpful to, to kind of explain the process and also help people know what to include in their comments. But when y'all did those workshops and uh, last week, did, what were the most common questions that, that you've received that people most commonly ask? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and thinking about that, I'm not sure that there was a question that came up over and over again, but I, there definitely was um, one thing um, that I think folks were generally struggling with, and we kind of, this came out through questions and also through comments as well. Um, and I think that many folks who are used to commenting or who have commented in the past are um, used to commenting on a document. Right. And here we don't have one. So I think that's just a really odd thing for, for many people, um, because it's now this opportunity to give input into what should be in that document. Document. So, you know, as Amy is mentioning, if you have concerns about what possible impacts are or if you have ideas about possible uh, alternatives to the project, um, this is the opportunity to do that. Um, and I think that's, again, why this is so important. It's really getting in early. Um, but as I said, I think that the whole idea of scoping and, and not really commenting on a document was something that, that came up um, a number of right. times. Right. I agree. That is a little different for us and a little different format. So do they have to respond to your comments, concerns, or suggestions that you bring up? So they, uh, yeah, in general, <laughs> in general, right? But they, they, it's not. Um, so you're uh, actually speaking to a court reporter. So no one actually, it's not a dialogue in this particular space, though. Correct. So nobody, when, you don't say something and somebody tells you something back. Correct. Not right. tonight. In this, in this situation, if you're talking to the court reporter during this open house, the court reporter probably isn't going to respond to you. In fact, almost <laughs> certainly isn't going to respond to you, right? But this is actually different than other public meetings where you get up at the microphone and you maybe ask a question and you get told, like, there's no responses to your question. Right. The listening right. session, you know. Um, this open house, they will be answer- doing a and a and they will be answering questions. So just remember that those conversations aren't in the official comment record and you still need to go over to the court reporter. Right, right. That's good to know. I think uh, so a lot of we've been work- talking about the master plan on Delta dispatches and a lot of what came before the master plan was a real dialogue where we sat down and we, we kind of had the opposite of a meeting like this. It's certainly still the open house and the, the meet and greet and, and ask questions and feel comfortable, but it was more of a dialogue. And, and so this is, and we were commenting, frankly, on, on a, like you said, a paper document on something uh, that they had been working on. So that is definitely a little bit different uh, for us to think about it in that way, but still very, very important. This is the first step on a, in a really long process. So, um, so is there anything else that y'all wanted to cover while you have the time? Anything um, that you want to make sure that people understand about the scoping meetings or about this particular process or, or even about NEPA itself? Well, just picking up on one thing I would say, um, picking up on what you're saying is this is a long process, and I think that's right. Um, so we're not expecting this draft environmental impact statement for actually a few years. I think right now the target years, date is just sometime. To, just yeah. to reiterate that, right? It takes yeah, a while years, to put this yeah, together. It's, it's 20, 2020, so um, it, it could be a long time before we see this this draft document come out of here and and you know see what you know the impact statement, and it's going to be another couple years after that, at least at this. Point, that's what they're targeting um, a couple years after that before it's finalized. So this is just really the beginning of, of, of a long process. But again, almost like everything else, the earlier you start to participate, Agreed. the good. better. Yeah, good point. 
Good point. So, ladies, where can we find you? Um, where is ELI? Twitter, Facebook, uh, online? Give us the details. Yeah, so the best place to find us is uh, on our website, which is not the easiest, but it's uh, <laughs> eli-ocean.org slash golf. And um, you can find our, uh, we have a fact sheet, a general fact sheet about scoping that's up there on the oh, website. Oh, that's helpful. So, Great. Yeah, so it's not specific to the Mid-Baritary Sediment Diversion Project, but it gives some details about NEPA and about scoping if you'd like some more information. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. Well, my partner in crime, Shock's not here, but we usually like to end our segment with a fun question. Since it's Tales of the Cocktails this week, what is your favorite New Orleans cocktail? You have to answer, or I won't let you off the phone. <laughs> Amy, do you have a well, New Orleans cocktail? <laughs> Any New Orleans cocktail? You've got to go hand grenade, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> You might be the first person to see that. That's funny. <laughs> All right, ladies, we very, very much appreciate your time today. It's been so helpful. Uh, we are going to share um, that information on the on the NEPA worksheet. We are very grateful for your time. We look forward to working with you again so y'all can come back to Louisiana. Well, thanks so much for having us. All right. Thanks. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be back after the break. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. This is Simone Malaz, missing, missing my partner in crime, Jacques Gaber, who I just heard on that PSA. Uh, he'll be back next week. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO. And you can also hear us online through our new podcast. Don't forget the new website, www.deltadispatches.org. We're continuing our discussion on Mid-Barataria. You've heard us talk about the meetings enough. And we are so grateful to have with us Natalie Perrinen, the Director of Science Policy for the Mississippi River. Delta Restoration Campaign and the Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome back, Natalie. Thanks, Simone. Glad to be back. Yes, so you are in D.C. How's your summer going? We were just talking about how hot it is there. It, it, it is hot here, and I certainly wish I was at the beach with shock. <laughs> yeah, at least it's hot with a, a little reprieve there, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so if it makes you feel any better, it was 95 here today, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> You'll be back next week. You can experience that for yourself. So it'll be, it'll be a cool down. Yeah, all right. I know that's when you welcome the rain. Um, so, Natalie, last time you were on, uh, we discussed diversions, I'm sure, and how they can be operated. But this time we wanted to get into the weeds of a particular project that we work on, and that is top of mind lately, the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion. Uh, we talked in the first segment with ELI about the scoping meetings that are beginning tonight. But could you remind our listeners about the um, just about diversions in general and about the power of reconnecting the Mississippi River to its delta? Sure. The, the muddy Mississippi that goes uh, past New Orleans every day um, is really an essential tool that we need to put to work uh, to rebuild our coast um, and use that mud um, to build wetlands. So uh, sediment diversion does just that. It's a series of gates that are built um, within the levee system um, that allows a portion of the Mississippi River um, and all its sediment and nutrients uh, to go out into the wetlands and start rebuilding and nourishing the wetlands that are there. So they both build new land, but they also help um, prevent the loss of the land that we're losing now every day. So mid Barataria says it all, right? It's it's targeted the, for the Barataria Basin. Why is that basin in particular important to us? Well, I think the whole coast of Louisiana is important to us. But oh, you Barataria- don't pick a favorite basin, Natalie. That was a <laughs> trick. Good job. <laughs> No, I, I don't have a favorite. They all they all have a they all have good parts to them and and good people in them. So, but the Barataria Basin, um, number one, it's it's right next to the river, so that makes it an ideal location for a sediment diversion. Um, but in the 2017 Coastal Master Plan, um, the Barataria Basin is predicted to lose 550 square miles of land. Uh, in the next 50 years. Wow. Uh, so so say that again, Nally. We had uh, we had Brady Cuvio on last week with USGS, but 550 square miles in the next 50 years. 550 that's, square miles. That's, that's about 350,000 acres of land uh, just in that basin. Um, and then another reason is the oil spill. And everybody watched the oil come into Barataria Basin. It was uh, ground zero for where the oil landed. Um, so it's, kind of had this historic land loss and this future land loss that we've been experiencing all all across coastal Louisiana, but it also uh, was then impacted by the oil spill. So yeah, oil spill, and that's certainly one of the source of fundings for this, for this project, but this project's been around for a long time, right? It's, um, it's had another name at one point. Yeah. Some folks may know it as the Myrtle Grove sediment diversion, which was its original name, um, which uh, kind of, put it in the location of that um, wonderful fishing community, Myrtle Grove. So tell us a little bit about the history of the project. It it goes back a a ways, at least to the 80s. Yeah, so it first appears in reports from the Corps of Engineers in 1984. So we're talking um, over 30 years of studying and and, um, moving this project along. It was then uh, one of the main diversion projects in uh, a plan called Coast 2050, um, and then after that in a, a core state partnership study uh, called the Louisiana Coastal Area Study. And that study um, did move on to go to Congress and uh, got approval in the 2007 uh, Water Resources Development Act, or WERDA, um, so it's been not only approved by the Corps through the uh, NEPA process, which I'm sure you talked about earlier, but also 
one key thing is it was identified as a near-term priority. And back then in 2007, it was said that these are the projects we need to get on the ground to start doing work in the next 10 years. And here we are 10 years later, and we're still not getting this project on the ground quite yet. Yeah, so those are really great points. We've talked about both Coast 2050 and LCA before in the show. I remember when I first started at Restore Retreat, um, uh, within a month after I started, they um, I remember the colonel signed um, the, the uh, I guess it was a record or decision or something at the time, on LCA, and then it went on to be in WERDA, which was kind of an abbreviated version of some of the projects that were in the original LCA, but it was deemed a near-term priority. So that's interesting that it's received core approval before and it's been in reports for a long time, as as diversions have as well, right? Now, you've done a, a lot, a lot of work on diversions and not just this one. Diversions have almost always been in coastal reports, right? Oh, yeah. Since way back when the coastal land loss crisis was first identified um, back in, in the 60s and 70s, uh, the the scientists who are identifying the problem were also identifying diversions as the solution way back then. Um, identifying this exact location in, in mid-Barataria um, uh, is first in the 1984 report. So since 2007, there have been some changes to the project. Of, uh, certainly, science and technology has been done as as just improve light years, right? But also the the size of the project has changed. Is there, um, what are some of the changes that are of note from the project of what was known as Myrtle Grove to now Mid-Barataria? Yeah, it has uh, changed as we've learned more. We've done a lot more science. So uh, even though we're waiting for this uh, project to be constructed, um, along the way, it's, it's been studied uh, in advanced. And so we've uh, the state, um, the Corps, and, and others have done work to identify what's the right size for this diversion. And originally in LCA, it was 15,000 cubic feet per second. Um, and doing modeling and testing different capacities of the diversion, it was found that actually if you increase the capacity of 75,000 cubic feet per second, you capture way more sediment off the river um, and you can build um, more land. And so that was a decision that was, was come to a few years ago. In addition, there was a lot of work on the location. What's the exact right location on the river that the diversion should be? Um, and as you can imagine, the river meanders and bends. And there's a difference if you put a diversion on the inside of a meander as opposed to the outside of a meander. And so there was a lot of work done there to identify the exact location. Those things were done to ensure that we capture the most sediment from the river to uh, build the most land and sustain the most land um, and also reduce any impacts uh, that may be possible to the navigation channel and um, with shoaling and sedimentation and and ensuring that we can and grab that sediment and use it the way we want to. And we know from your own work, Natalie, that that doesn't mean on day one you just flip a switch and it's 75,000 CFS, right? No, there's no way to, to uh, open it up uh, on day one and, and capture that much of the river uh, because the, the basin is not adjusted to a sediment diversion. So we've had this slow, slow collapse over the last hundred years of Barataria Basin, and it's an everyday thing. Um, we can't go in there and, and, you know, shock it to 75,000 cubic feet per second. So once it is operational, it will gradually increase in operations 
allowing the environment and the ecosystem to adjust um, to, to handle that capacity. So, Natalie, where you have that work, where can we find that? It was recently just published, correct? Where, where can we find that information on the actual operations uh, and, and not just, of, uh, just in di- of diversions in general, right? Yeah, there's a lot of information, including summary reports, the main report, um, and some blogs uh, and some presentations, all available on MississippiRiverDelta.org. Uh, That's great. So uh, we want to talk about, uh, after the break, we're going to talk about some recent advancements on the project, including that post-bill funding source. Uh, We want to talk about what is the federal dashboard, what that even means. But also we want to talk about timelines and and some other things like that. So, uh, Natalie, you able to hang on for us a little while? I will do so. Okay, great. We're going to have to take a short commercial break. You're listening to WGSO 990 AM, where we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, jobs, and why restoring it matters. We'll see you after the break. Welcome back. This is Simone Malaz. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. We are back with Natalie Perrinen, the Director of Science Policy for the Mississippi River Delta Restoration Coalition and with the Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome back, Natalie. Thanks, Simone. We talk a lot about funding on this show, and this um, project does have some initial funding, correct? Correct. Um, So the first step in the process is the engineering design and permitting of the project. Um, And so that has come from from NIFWIS, which has supplied the funding to to go through the engineering. Sure. So as we've explained before in the show, that's the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, uh, which was the recipient of um, some fines, criminal fines, as a result of the um, deaths associated with the Deepwater Horizon um, uh, incident. Uh, and so that is an organization maybe unfamiliar to us, but uh, it is known for uh, these types of of. Um, Uh, settlements, if you will, and they've dedicated some money here to Louisiana, and it's dedicated only for diversions and barrier islands. You've heard us talk a lot about Caminata, uh, the beach down there by uh, Grand Isle and Elmer's Island. That was uh, also NIFWIT funding. So we've talked about that before. Natalie, tell us a little bit about the federal dashboard and what mid-barataria being added to the, quote, federal dashboard. What does that even mean? So the federal dashboard comes out of a a law, Fast 41, that was passed to um, understand the permitting issues. Um, We've all heard about the bureaucracy of permitting, and um, and there's not consistency necessarily in permitting within the federal uh, government. And so, uh, you know, it was mainly uh, initiated for for normal infrastructure. Uh, So a road uh, in one area of the country may take two years to get a permit in this similar road could take five years and another. So, so really trying to, to build the consistency, understand uh, what the timelines are for getting a permit through the process, um, kind of cutting red tape, as, as, as said, but still maintaining all of the essential parts of the process. And then the other part of it is to increase the transparency of the permitting process. Um, and so the Mid-Barataria being added is a really great thing. It's the only environmental project to date on the dashboard. Um, the rest is your traditional infrastructure-type projects. So we're excited to, to see how the federal dashboard can not only um, streamline the project while maintaining all of the environmental regulations, 
but also um, increase the transparency and um, engagement with with stakeholders. Yeah, that sounds like a, a real win for all of coastal restoration to have a project like that added to the to the dashboard. I know that the governor himself also wrote a letter. Uh, to the current administration, also asking them to consider this one of a one of the vital infrastructure projects that it wants to implement. So that's good. It's also interesting to hear you compare like a road in one place may take two years to go through the permitting process and somewhere else it may take longer. Let's talk some timelines. Uh, we talked with the um, with the ladies from ELI that that tonight's scoping meeting and next week's scoping meeting really is just one of the very first steps in this process. What are some other milestones and, and dates that we might expect? So at the end of the scoping process, uh, on the federal dashboard, the, the core must produce a scoping report. And this is kind of um, a report that typically tells us everything they heard during the scoping process. And um, the comments that people made, and we're, we're really encouraging the core uh, to also include in that scoping report uh, timelines for when, when the permit milestones will be made, uh, what they plan to do, how, what analysis do they plan to do, and what data are they going to use, um, and really what issues are they really looking at and trying to dig into within the, the EIS process. And so uh, we're really encouraging uh, folks uh, the core, and we're encouraging folks to also encourage the core to <laughs> really make this this report a very robust report, um, so that people can really see. Okay, here's the whole process laid out. Um, after that, the draft EIS uh, is uh, currently set to come out in April 2020. 2020. Um, 2020. 2020. And then uh, the core has been on record saying that they would make their final permitting decision in October of 2022. 2022. 2022. <laughs> Natalie, that seems, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. For a reminder for everybody, it's 2017. That seems like a long time. I mean, nobody wants to cut corners, but, but are there any efficiencies in the process that we can find? Is, is there Anything that could be done to, like I said, not cut corners, but to speed up that process? I can't imagine that there isn't. Um, a typical EIS... <laughs> that was also a trick question, Natalie. Good job. Yeah. A, a, a typical EIS uh, uh, takes uh, three years, uh, kind of the average of, of what people say an EIS should take. Um, this project has been studied, as we said, since 1984. So, and and through the NEPA process, a lot of these right. things have already been studied. So, there are NEPA supporting documents already for this project that can be brought into this EIS. And so, we truly believe that there are ways to speed up the process that we have to. We absolutely have to. We need the coordination of the federal agencies and the cooperation of the state to all work together to ensure that we can do this as quick as possible. Because remember, every single day we don't get a permit means we're not constructing, which we're not operating. And every single day, the land out in Barataria Bay is going away. So yeah, that's... Bay doesn't, doesn't just mean that, oh, we just have to wait to get our project. It means we're losing land every single day. 
Yeah, I saw this uh, great article just today on on EHAB, Maselli, with the Water Institute of the Gulf. I know you've worked with EHAB a lot, and it was this really great um, insight into EHAB and, and all of his amazing work on, on not just diversions, but the master plan. But at the end, it just talked about how, how he was looking out his window, looking at the Mississippi River, and just said, that's opportunity that's passing, right? So every single day, we had Brady on last week talking about that about um, how much land that we're losing and, and the important uh, opportunity that this project has for us and, and the impact that it can make um, into the into the whole Delta, right? All of it, not just uh, this project, but it certainly is is leading the way for other projects, including Mid-Breton. That's a whole nother project. Do you want to talk about that for just a little bit? That's another project included in the master plan. Sure. I mean, uh, just like... Uh Barataria Basin is losing a lot of land. Breton Basin is, is losing a lot of land on the other side of the river and needs the same solution. And, and Mid-Breton um, has been around, again, for a very long time, um, probably the same amount of time that, that Mid-Barataria has. It used to be known as, as White Stitch. Oh, yes. Um, they like these, like, uh, undercover uh, names. Huh? <laughs> they change them <laughs> on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to follow it down the line. But um, but, you know, it's just as important to get that sediment diversion in the ground for the Breton Basin uh, as it is for the Barataria Basin. And so moving these sediment diversions forward, making sure that we're not spending five years on every single sediment diversion, um, we'll just be too far behind the ball. So we've got to move this forward as quickly as we can. Yeah, well, th- Natalie, we'll have you on back, maybe talk about Mid-Breton another time. It's a whole different project for a whole different basin. Uh, so let- we'll have you back to talk about that. But thank you for joining us today to talk about Mid-Barataria. And again, tonight kicks off that important scoping process. So once again, you've provided us with some excellent information about a project that's one of the cornerstones of the state's restoration program. Where can we find you, Natalie? Twitter, Facebook, where we got, where you at? Where yeah, you at, girl? Yeah, you, can, you can find me on Twitter or on uh, edf.org. I've got my information there if you want to reach out. I'm happy to talk to anybody about uh, sediment diversions or anything else coastal. Great. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks for joining us. Uh, just a reminder, the Mid-Barataria public meetings begin tonight. They're from 5 to 8 p.m. Uh, tonight, it's in Lafitte in the multipurpose complex. Uh, next Tuesday, in the Bell Chase Auditorium. And next Thursday in the Port Sulphur Community Center. Uh, thank you for joining us on Delta Dispatches. Don't forget, you can catch the podcast on our new website, www.deltadispatches.org. That's it for this show. Thanks for joining us. Until next week, I'm Simone Malas with Restore Retreat. Have a good evening. <laughs>